And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John, John's Gospel, Chapter 8. I'll warn you, we won't be there very long. <laughs> but if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And uh, to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel, verse by verse, here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We're currently in Chapter 8, where we have paused for a few weeks to do a special series we've entitled true freedom. It actually came about from our study of John 8 verses 31 and 2, where the Lord Jesus told his disciples, if you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We call this series true freedom because as we pointed out, a person won't know true freedom in their life until they willingly become the slave of Christ. That thought intrigues you. You can go online and listen to the previous studies. But uh, there are three powerful enemies that we face as children of God. The devil, the world, and then the flesh. The first two, the devil and the world, attack us from without. But the flesh, our fallen sinful nature, comes at us from within. And it can be a very powerful enemy in its attempt to defeat us or to keep us defeated. In fact, we likened it to a giant that stands between us and God's will for our lives, much like the giant Goliath stood between David and God's will for his life. And that's why, guys, we took several weeks studying 1 Samuel 17 and David's victory over Goliath. We did so because, as we said, the same principles that went into David, uh, David's victory over Goliath are the same principles for victory that apply to any child of God facing any giant in life, giant problem, bad habit, giant adversity, etc. Now, as we said last week, the battle of David against Goliath is a tremendous study in gaining victory over seemingly invincible enemies and insurmountable problems that come against us. But there are other battles in the Bible we can learn from, other principles for victory we can glean from. I'll share a couple of them with you this morning. Not that we'll look at them exhaustively, but uh, we'll pull out some of the main stuff uh, that will help us in our quest to be victorious Christians for the Lord. And uh, I'll start with one of my all-time favorites that comes out of Joshua chapter 6. So why don't you turn there? Now in Joshua chapter 6, we see the children of Israel fight their first and greatest battle against the enemy in the land of Canaan, the Battle of Jericho. The Battle of Jericho. I call it the greatest battle because Jericho was the strongest stronghold of the enemy in the land of promise. It rose from the floor of the plains of Jericho and stood before the armies of Israel like an impregnable, invincible fortress. When we studied Joshua 6, we said that there may be something in your life that rises up and stands in front of you, your own personal Jericho, if you will. These, make, these take many different forms. It could be the Jericho of alcohol or drugs, the Jericho of pornography, the Jericho of materialism or pride or anger or depression, or even the Jericho of an unsaved spouse that is a constant battle in your life. Whatever form your personal Jericho takes, it is your greatest challenge, it is your biggest obstacle that tries to keep you, tries to stop you from taking hold of 
in possessing your own personal spiritual promised land. What am I talking about? Peter said that God has given to us as his children many great and precious promises in his word. Whenever you begin to possess those promises, enter into those promises by faith and benefit from all God has promised, you enter into your own personal promised land. I'll warn you, a lot of Christians never get there. They die in the wilderness and never experience the fullness of all that God has for them. What is in the wilderness? Unbelief, carnality, doubt, all the things that kept Israel from entering the promised land for 40 years. We have to be careful. The devil will use all kinds of things. Fear and doubt among are at top of the list. When we read God's word and the promises he's given to us about how he's going to take care of us, how he's promised us victory, and so on. If we don't take those to heart, if we doubt, uh, harbor in our hearts and, and uh, carnality, of course, we're never going to enter into our own spiritual promised land. So we'd be careful, all right? I'll just pull a, one main principle from this story. If you want to listen to all the other principles that we dug out when we studied Joshua, go online and uh, access our victorious Christian living study out of the book of Joshua. I'll just pull out one principle, main principle from uh, this story of Israel's victory over Jericho, uh, and that was the absolute obedience and total surrender that Israel obeyed God with. Look at verse 12. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns uh, went before the ark of the Lord, uh, went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went with them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets, the shofar. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Now, guys, Israel's obedience toward God was rooted in their faith in God to do what he had promised he was going to do. Give them victory over Jericho if, if they obeyed all he told them to do. Look, faith is an essential, faith is essential for any victory we enjoy as the people of God. And obedience is an essential element of true faith. Let me say it again. Faith is essential for any victory we enjoy as the people of God, and obedience is an essential element of true faith. Hebrews 11:30 says, and I quote, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Don't misunderstand. Faith didn't by itself bring down the walls of Jericho. There is no power in faith to do anything because faith isn't a power, it's a pathway. Faith is not a power, it's a pathway. The power to do miracles comes from God. But our faith in God in what, and in what he has promised in his word becomes the pathway or conduit that allows the power of God to flow from him into our lives to do his work. Now, are you saying, Pastor, that God is subject to our faith, that God can't work unless we have faith for a situation? Absolutely not. God is sovereign. God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But God encourages faith. God blesses faith. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, that Jesus went back into the hometown, of that the town he grew up, his hometown, Nazareth, after he began his public ministry. 
And it says, because of their unbelief, he did not do many mighty things among them. He didn't do many mighty miracles because of their unbelief. Didn't say he couldn't. It says he didn't. Implying he wanted to, but wouldn't bless their unbelief. I'm convinced God wants to do a lot of things in our lives. But because we harbor unbelief, he doesn't. But listen to me. Whatever form, excuse me. However, let me just say this. Even faith in God is powerless to do his work if it isn't coupled with obedience. As James tells us in James 2 verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, and the works is obeying God's commands, is dead. Is dead. And so guys, once again, as we read Hebrews 11.30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down, listen, after they were encircled, for seven days after they were marched around for seven days listen in obedience to god's command this is what he told them to do they had to obey first before god worked the miracle these people could people could have stood there indefinitely looking at those walls and commanding them to fall while mustering up all the faith in the world it would have been meaningless because no obedience equals no power and no power renders faith ineffective and meaningless. And I'm not talking about temporary obedience either. We're all famous for temporary obedience, okay? Um, obedience that obeys for a while and then quits when things don't happen as quickly as we would like. And I'm not talking about selective obedience that only obeys what we feel like obeying in God's word. There's a lot of that going around, okay? The only faith that brings down strongholds is faith rooted in total obedience to all that God has said in his word for as long as it takes to get the job done. We're talking about absolute surrender and obedience to the will of God coupled with perseverance. In the Greek New Testament, the word perseverance is a word that means to hang in there. Don't quit. A lot of Christians quit before they actually ever see God work the miracle. God would have worked the miracle if they had hung in there. Don't bail. Don't quit. Persevere. Now listen. You're not going to appreciate the depth of surrender and obedience these people walked in in Joshua 6 if you fail to understand one important thing that doesn't come through very uh, clearly, but I believe is there in the text, okay? And that is, we really don't get any indication from the text that the soldiers of Israel knew the whole battle strategy of God for fighting this battle. We know in verse 2 it says, and God spoke to Joshua and told him, you're going to have the armies of Israel march around the walls once a day for six days in silence, seventh day, seven times, uh, and then shout and the walls will fall down. You're going to take the victory. In verse 10, it sounds as if Joshua, well, it says, Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. He doesn't really seem to give them the whole strategy. And I think maybe that was by design. I think it could have been God told him to only share with the fighting men of Israel so much of the battle plan. 
God often won't give us the whole deal up front. Well, here's what I've got for your entire life. How do you like it next 40 years? Wow, uh, I'm out of here, Lord. You know, like Moses, can you send somebody else? Uh, no, he often reveals his will one day at a time, doesn't he? And so the idea here is, I, I believe, Joshua only told them the, just the very minimum, okay, that they were to, you know, uh, each day march around the city once in silence, and then, you know, when I tell you, shout. But he doesn't tell them when that day is going to come for them to shout, nor what's going to happen when he finally tells them to shout. It seems as though Joshua only gave orders to the men of Israel for each day, for each day which was to wake up early, much around the city in silence, and then go back to camp. It seems that Joshua never told the people how many days they were going to be marching around the city, or again, for, for that matter, what was going to happen when he finally told them to shout. They were given their instructions one day at a time, and at the end of their assignment for that day, having marched around the city once, they were told to go back to camp. And each day ended the same way uh, at the end of the march for that day nothing happened they went back to camp nothing happened they marched around the walls uh, the walls were still standing no one had surrendered they seemed no closer to conquest than the day before now think about this these were warriors and warriors want to fight okay warriors want to take on opponents and this must have been very difficult for them. To march around this city once a day in silence couldn't even taunt the men of Jericho. Couldn't even, you know, uh, trash talk anybody. Well, if we can't show them we're tough, we'll tell them how tough we are, you know. And, no, you can't. Be quiet. Don't say a word. And to make matters worse, well, let me just say this. Day after day, they obeyed Joshua, who was obeying God. And day after day, day, there was absolutely no evidence that anything was happening, even though they were being obedient. You ever been there? You ever been hanging in there and doing what you believe God wants you to do? And day after day, you're faithful. And I don't know what you're praying about, but it's something important to you. And day after day, it seems like you're faithful and nothing's happening. Like God's not working at all. You want to give up. You're You're frustrated. Remember Habakkuk. He was a prophet of God. And he was faithful to doing what God told him to do. And he was praying every day for the nation that was in bad shape at this time. And finally he got discouraged. And he said, Lord, that's it. I'm done. I'm not praying anymore. You're not doing anything. I'm tired of being faithful here. You're not doing a thing. And God spoke to Habakkuk. He said, well, wait a minute. Just because you don't see me working doesn't mean I'm not working. In fact, if I was to tell you what I'm doing, you wouldn't believe it for the magnitude of it. Look, just because you don't see God working doesn't mean he's not doing something and maybe something great. So don't give up. Keep being faithful. Very important point. Now, Israel was being faithful. These were fighting guys. And they were marching around this city. And I would imagine um, that... What made matters worse, I, I'm convinced that after a few days, the enemy, which was looking down on top, you know, from the walls uh, onto Israel below, these were pretty high walls, history tells us. 
uh, with a large walkway all around it, in fact, double wall. And uh, the men of Jericho were up there looking, you know. And after a few days of them watching Israel, you know, make a spectacle out of themselves, marching around the city in silence and going back to camp. And, you know, this happened day after day. I would imagine after about the third day, they began to mock and make fun out of the people, of the men of Israel, which if you're a warrior was all the more humiliating. I mean, I think the first day, they're like, oh, here they come, you know, because they knew about the God of Israel. They had heard the stories hundreds of years, from hundreds of years earlier, how God defeated the strongest nation on the face of the earth, the Egyptians with a mighty outstretched arm. They knew these people had a powerful God. And so they knew that, you know, if these people with this God's backing were to attack them, they were done. So I would imagine the first day, here comes Israel, you know, from the horizon, you know, they're encamped a ways away. Here they come marching toward the city, and the men of Jericho are terrified. Here they come, we've had it, you know, and oh my goodness, you know, here, they, here comes the armies of Israel, and all of a sudden they start marching around the city walls, and they're thinking, they're scoping us out, man, we're, we're done. And then they get finished, and, and they go marching off into the sunset. Well, that was weird. What happened there? Second day, okay, here they come again. You know, Okay, well, they were just scoping us out yesterday. Now we've had it today, right? Here come the men of Israel, march over, march around the city, march around the city, and then they go off back into the camp. And I'm thinking about the third day, the people of Jericho are going, what is going on with these people? Are these people crazy? What, do they think we left the door open or something? They're trying to find an opening? And I would imagine third, fourth day especially, they start mocking, taunting the men of Israel who can't respond, who are under orders from God not to say a word. And they're shouting now and they're mocking now. These people. Again, which would have made their obedience to God all the more frustrating and humiliating. Look, it isn't easy obeying God, is it? Especially today. I mean, obeying God with regard to sexual purity or supporting the work of God financially, which means you go without to see somebody on the mission field saved as you send resources? Or hanging in there when your marriage is failing? Look, you can expect the world to mock and ridicule you as you seek to obey the Lord. But guys, I'm convinced God doesn't act immediately and makes us sometimes endure humiliation at the hands of unbelievers. It's all designed by God to see, listen, if you're going to keep going and fully obey what he has told you to do, are you going to hang in there? That's why I believe God made them go through this protracted marching deal. He didn't need these guys to do anything. He could have spoke a word and vaporized Jericho. And the strategy, really. I mean, Lord, give us, I mean, let us save face here. You know, we'll, we'll build battering rams. We'll pound a hole through the walls. We'll get in there. We'll f- no, you're not going to do any of that. You're going to march in silence every day until I tell you to shout. This was all designed by God to test the endurance of their faith and obedience. Look, it's not enough to obey God for a while in the face of a difficult situation, but then, you know, grow impatient when he doesn't act as quickly as we would like or in exactly the way we would like him to act. So after a while, we're all famous for that initial obedience. 
But after a while, we grow impatient. We pull back, begin adopting our own strategy for handling things. And in the process, we often mess things up big time, don't we? I always think of Abraham and Hagar and how God promised Abraham that he and Sarah would have a son when Abraham was 75 years old. He, God made him this promise. 13 years passes, or 12 years, and uh, nothing has happened. Now Abraham's in his, his 80s. And Sarah's not getting any younger either. And so, well, maybe God meant we were supposed to help him out. And in that culture, if you take your wife's handmaiden, you could raise up a child through her, and it would be considered your wife and your child. Well, then maybe that's what God meant. He, he wants us to help him out. Whenever you try to help God out, you are on shaky ground and about ready to make a big mess of things. By God, excuse me, by Abraham helping God out so many years ago, the Jews are still dealing with the consequences of that act today. Because Abraham, Hagar, they had Ishmael. Ishmael became the father of the Arab nations, and the Arab nations are at war with Israel to this day. But God was trying to teach them as they were about ready to enter the promise line. Jericho stood on the border of the promise. They had to get through Jericho to get to the promise line. God wanted to teach them right up front. This was going to be a walk of faith, this whole deal in the promised land. So God wanted to teach them up front the importance of following his directions to the letter every day, no matter, listen, how foolish those directions were from God, how long it took for them to see victory. He wanted to teach them the battle is not theirs, was not theirs, the battle is mine. This is something God wanted to pound into them from the very start. The battle is not yours. The battle is mine, and I have a purpose for everything I do under heaven. I have a time for every purpose I have under heaven. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, Two things are required of us. Adhering strictly to the directions which God has given us, trustfully and hopefully waiting for his blessings upon the same, patience must have her perfect work. Thus, it was with Israel here. They fainted not because the walls of Jericho fell not the first or second or even the fifth or sixth day, nor did they take matters into their own hands and resort to another method. End quote. Well, praise God, uh, they hung in there and didn't, you know, let the humiliation get to them to the point where they said, we're going to do it our way. They never would have saw victory. In Psalm 37, verse 34, the psalmist said, wait on, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land, which is our spiritual promised land, speaking to Christians today. The psalmist said, wait on the Lord and keep his way. But you see, Failure to wait on the Lord because we grow impatient, well, causes us to depart from His way and go our own way. And in the process, we bring a lot of shame and regret into our lives as we mess things up badly. Even as Isaiah said, Isaiah 49, verse 23, they shall not be ashamed to wait upon me. Look, God is saying to you this morning, especially if you're growing impatient, over some prayer that you've been praying for a long time. God is saying to you through his word, I'm working. I'm working. You may not see it, but I, you must believe it by faith. I am working. I have good in mind for you. 
I know the thoughts, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Fight the temptation to take things into your own hands and try to work this out through your own strength. You are going to mess things up. You just hang on. You just trust me. I'm working. We need to take that to heart. Uh, very important. Now, you can fi finish the rest of the story on your own. They followed God's uh, command, instructions to the letter. They marched around the city once a day for six days in absolute silence. On the seventh day, they marched around seven times in silence. Joshua said, shout. The priests blew one long blast on the ram's horns, and the walls of Jericho fell down. Archaeology confirms they fell down inwardly, not outwardly. They were not stormed from without and pushed down. They fell down outwardly because God knocked them down. And God gave them a tremendous victory. You know, whenever I read the story of the Battle of Jericho, I can't help but hear the words of Paul out of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25 in my ears, where God talked about, excuse me, where Paul talked about the foolishness of God. The, remember? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, he said, right? Now, when you read that, be careful. God, Paul's not saying God's a fool or God does all kinds of foolish things. He's saying that God is wiser than us and does things sometimes, tells us to do things sometimes that seem foolish to us. Well, we wouldn't do it that way, Lord, but that's the whole point. God doesn't want us doing it our way because if we have success, we take the credit. There are times when God says, I want to put your back up against the wall where you have no options left. You have no recourse. You're completely pinned in. Your back is against the wall. I want to trap you so that you're forced to trust me so that when I work, I get the glory and you learn an important lesson that nothing is hard for me. Remember God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, purposely led them into a trap, Red Sea in front of them, uh, approaching Egyptian army behind them. They were trapped. If God hadn't pinned them in and they found out the Egyptian army was coming, the most powerful army on the face of the earth, they would have scattered in every direction. They would have never learned how God could, could do the impossible. But God forced them to stand still and see the salvation of their God. And God worked a miracle part of the Red Sea. Israel went through on dry ground. When the Egyptian army tried, God closed the waters, drowned them all. This is what God wants to teach us. This is why he didn't allow these tough guys of Israel's army to go in and do it the conventional way and go hand-to-hand -hand combat and storm the walls. He wanted them to know the battle is mine. I'm going to give you victory in this, in this battle like you're never going to know from in any other battle. I'm going to do it all. Because when I do it, you'll know that no enemy is strong enough for me. I can do anything. And we need to understand that in our own personal lives. Now, I want you to turn over to 2 Chronicles quickly, verse, uh, chapter 20. I want to share another of my favorite battle stories. Interesting, this one, they didn't have to do anything either. <laughs> I love these. Uh, Lord, if you just would do it all, I'd appreciate it. No, he doesn't do it with everything. But these two battles, they didn't really have to do much. Uh, this one especially. But it's the story of the battle that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and the men of Judah fought against three very powerful enemy nations that came together against little Judah, 
there were the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites, okay? And I'm just going to read this whole story. I'll break it down into categories, okay? First of all, the problem. Verse 1, it happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others, we learned those others were the Edomites, uh, with them, and besides the Ammonites, came to, to battle against Jehoshaphat. Let me just stop you there. So here was the problem. Uh, you had these three very powerful nations join forces to come against little Judah. Now, fortunately, Judah had at this time on the throne a very godly king named Jehoshaphat. And because he was a godly king, when a situation arose, an enemy that was more powerful than they could even think about going up against, he turned to God and, and made a proclamation. Verse 3, Then Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, so Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So he calls the entire nation of Jerusalem for a day of fasting. And uh, that's what godly people do when they are faced with a gigantic problem. They turn to God, and they often incorporate into their uh, lives a time of fasting, which then always leads to a time of prayer. You never fast without praying. You can pray without fasting. But you never fast for spiritual reasons. You can fast for physical reasons, health reasons, without praying. But in the Bible, if you're going to use fasting in a spiritual way, you always couple fasting with prayer. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. And so we see the problem, the proclamation, and thirdly, the prayer. Verse 5, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O, God, o Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? Now, guys, he's not reminding God. Lord, now you remember how you're God, don't you? You know, yeah, we don't want you to forget that. We need you now. Uh, you know, and then you got all this power, right? Don't, don't forget that, Lord. No, we don't do that. I mean, he's, he's reminding himself, really. Okay, God knows who he is. God knows the power he has, right? But often we forget that. So it's good to kind of remind ourselves in prayer, and that's what he's doing. Verse 7, are you not our God? Now he's making it personal. Aren't, you, aren't we your people by covenant? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. What Jehoshaphat is doing is he's drawing on the prayer of Solomon many centuries earlier when Solomon finished, uh, they finished building this temple and Solomon dedicated it. And he said, Lord, now if your people, and he lists the very things, if your people are afflicted, if there's famine, or if there's pestilence in the land, or if enemies attack, if we will assemble at this place and call upon your name, we're your people, Lord, that you will hear our prayer and you will work to deliver us. And God said, yes, I will, basically, by blessing that temple with his presence. And so now Jehoshaphat, godly man, is drawing on that promise and, and saying, Lord, remember what you promised us, right? Verse 10. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, 
whom you would not let Israel invade when when you brought us out of Egypt. Lord, you wouldn't let us attack these people. Uh, Lord, you know, and, and we didn't do anything to them. But now here's how they repay us. Your people, here's how they repay us. They want to attack us and throw us out of the very possession you've given us. We didn't do anything to them. Why are they picking this fight with us, right? Verse 12, O Lord, O our God, will you not judge them? I love this. For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And then the prophecy comes. Verse 13, Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord in silence. They have just prayed to God, asking for His intervention. And then they took time to wait upon the Lord. Often we pray, and then we rush right out to do what we think is best. We don't even wait for God to work. They waited. With all their little ones, their wives, they stood before the Lord. Verse 14, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. Now this gentleman is prophesying. God is speaking through him. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Well, I wish God would talk to me like this. Well, it would be so easy if God just talked to me like he's talking to these people. Hello. He is screaming from the book on your lap. He's got more to say to you this morning than he ever had to say to Jehoshaphat back then. God's always talking. We're just not listening. And primarily he's talking through the pages of his word. But he said, listen, you men of Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. Listen to me, for the battle is not yours but God's. Do you see a pattern here, folks? How that all through the Bible, God is reminding us that our struggles, our battles, our enemies are not ours to fight. They're the Lord's. Whatever you're facing this morning, the battle is not yours. It is God's. And you will only know frustration and defeat if you try to take that battle onto yourself and win it in your own strength. Listen to what we're being taught here by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, Tomorrow, go down against them. Go up to fight. Verse 17, You will not need to fight, though, in this battle. Just march to where the enemy is. Position yourselves Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Is God with you this morning? Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If God is for us, who can be against us? You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself and stand still. See the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Well, that leads to the next section I'm calling the power of praise. The problem, the proclamation, the prayer, the prophecy, the power of praise. Verse 18, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. 
Then the Levites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Joshua stood and said, Hear me, O Judah. The people are marching now from Jerusalem to where the enemies encamp. This is miles away. They can't see the enemy at this point. When they started out from Jerusalem, marching where they knew the enemy was encamped, all they have is the promise of God that he's going to work a miracle here. And the people were still very faint-hearted. They were fearful. So along the way, Jehoshaphat encourages them, right? He said, hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. We need to be encouraged once in a while, don't we? As we march into battle serving God. It's good to have people come alongside of us and go, look, I'm praying for you. I know what you're going through. Look, we're praying for you. God's going to give you victory. That really makes a difference, doesn't it, in our lives? That's what Jehoshaphat's doing. Say, hear me, O Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Can I paraphrase? Believe in the power of your God and cling to the promises of his word. That's what the prophets did. They spoke God's word. Now, I want you to know what happened. They're marching towards the enemy. I don't know how many miles it is. But as the minute, and let me just read a little farther, okay? Um, Verse 21, And when he had consulted with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And as they went out before the army, they were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So you have to understand this. What God told Joshua to do was put his worship team up in front, in front of the soldiers, right? I mean, come on. Who puts their worship team up front? No offense to the worship. Well, we get a pretty tough worship leader. I'd put him up in front. But uh, not a lot of worship people when I stick up in front, okay? Um, but that's what God told him. You march into battle with praise. You put your worship team in front of the army. You march into battle with praise. So here they are, leaving Jerusalem, marching to where the enemy was. Who knows how many miles that was away? Four or five miles. As they're leaving Jerusalem and praising God by faith, God suddenly caused a spirit of confusion to fall upon these three nations. And they begin to rise up and fight with each other, wiping each other out completely. Verse 22, now when, when they began to sing, so they're just leaving Jerusalem. And to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, which is Edom, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly, to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another, so that when Judah came to, the, to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen to the earth. No one had escaped. By the time the people of Judah got to where the enemy was encamped, God had taken care of the enemy. They were completely dead, all of them. Verse 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies the precious and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka. 
and there they blessed the Lord. Uh, uh, there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Baraka until this day. Baraka means blessing. The Valley of Blessing. Then they returned, every man to Judah, of Judah to, and Jerusalem. They returned with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. So they're praising all, all the way to the battle, all the way home from the battle, okay? They came back to the temple, verse 29, and the fear of, of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries all around when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Guys, here's a powerful principle. First of all, do you want victory over the enemies in your life? Again, those enemies take different forms. Enemies of alcohol, drugs, fear, um, depression. Sometimes it's a wayward teenager that has your heart broken. They, these things take all kinds of forms. Again, they're giants like David fought. They're Jerichos like Joshua went up against. Do you want to have victory over the enemies in your life? First of all, then bring it to God in prayer and acknowledge how powerless you are over this or those enemies. Verse 12, for, God, for we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Believe it or not, that's the best place you could be in. God has allowed you to put your back up against the wall. God has put your back up against the wall. You're out of options. You have no more recourse. You have to trust in God. Lord, I'm out of options here. I don't even know what to do anymore. My eyes are on you. You don't do something, we're, we're done. That's the best place to be in because when you're weak, you're what? Strong. Of course, whatever God has a, a commanded you to do in his word, you obey that. Stay in prayer. Stay in fellowship with him, with the body of Christ. Get other people praying for you. Be in the word and so on. Just as God gave Jehoshaphat specific instructions through prophecy that he was to obey, which he did. And then, guys, here's the principle. March into battle with praise. March into battle with praise. Praise is really a manifestation of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, let alone to have victory in your Christian life. After you have prayed and given the situation to God, then you demonstrate your confidence and faith in Him to take care of whatever problem you have brought to Him, listen, by spending time praising Him, thanking God for doing what he has promised you in his word he was going to do and praising him even before, this is so important, even before you see the fulfillment of what he has promised because that pleases the heart of God and releases his power into our situation. You have to understand this. In God's word, he has given us many great and precious promises. A lot of times we believe God if he'll show us that he's going to work it out by, you know, fulfilling the promise. And then we'll praise him. Then we'll believe he's a powerful God. God said, no, you first believe me, praise me for doing what I have promised you I'm going to do, even before it's been, I've, I've done it. it you know, God says, praise me before you see the fulfillment of the promise that honors me. It shows me that you have 
tremendous faith in my promises. What is, uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not yet see. That's faith. It's praising God for, for doing what he has not yet fulfilled, but you trust he's going to do it because he's promised you. And a promise from God, you can take it to the bank, right? And that, guys, releases God's power into our situation. I mean, look at the, we're done, but just look at the lesson the Holy Spirit is teaching us through this story with Jehoshaphat. First of all, a valley of fear and defeat. We would call it a valley, valley of the shadow of death. That's where, you know, the enemies were encamped, right? Um, where little Judah, in its own strength, would certainly have been destroyed. This valley of fear and defeat was turned into a valley of victory and blessing, all because God's people listened, trusted in his strength, obeyed his command, and marched into battle with praise. Listen to me. You are not a defeated person. The devil works hard every day to tell us that because we're still wrestling with some giant or Jericho. I'm telling you what the scriptures say. You are not a defeated person. You are a child of God who stands in the victory Jesus Christ won at Calvary's cross when he died, and then three days later he stepped from that tomb alive. And as such, you are not working towards victory. You are working from it. It is already yours. You have to believe that. Without faith, you can't please God or have victory. You have to believe that and then do as Paul the Apostle admonished in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might the battle belongs to him. Guys, we have to learn to face our fears. We have to learn to face our weaknesses, our challenges. Whatever challenges God allows to come into our lives because everything is a, is a test of our faith. Everything is a learning experience, a growing experience. He's always wanting to grow our faith. We have to face our fears, our weaknesses, our challenges, and face them with a song of praise in our hearts because our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is alive. And when he stepped from that garden tomb victorious, he was, he was victorious. He stepped from that garden tomb uh, victorious over our greatest enemy in this world, death, death. And because, guys, you are in him, his victory is your victory. That's what the Bible says. I mean, listen. If the Lord Jesus Christ has already defeated our greatest enemy, death, well, don't you think, don't you know, he can and will defeat whatever enemy you're facing this morning? I mean, think about it. If he can conquer death, can he conquer alcohol in your life or pornography or drugs or depression or anxiety or fear or whatever it might be? Jesus Christ conquered the greatest enemy we'd ever face. Which means anything else that we're battling is nothing compared to his strength. So march in the battle with praise. The victory is yours. March in the battle with praise because as Paul said in Romans 8.37, you are more than a conqueror through him who loves us. Now a word of caution. Once you have attained victory, holding on to it, can be tougher than getting it in the first place. Will you indulge me one more week? 
because I want to take a look at the things that can rob us of our victory. Satan is very, you know, when we have victory, you know, he's defeated in this thing. He takes a couple of steps back and lets us have our little time of praise and thanksgiving. And he waits. He waits until we start lowering our guard a little bit, then he attacks to rob us of our victory. And there are definite ways he does that, things he will use. And so let's look one more week at these things because they're important. Uh, yes, to have victory, yes, we do certain things we trust in God. To keep victory, we've got to be on guard against certain things that the devil will use to rob us of that victory. So let, next week, God willing, we will look at one last study in our true freedom series. How many times have I said that? It was going to be a one-part study. And I said two, then four. But now, okay, anyways. Who knows? By the time we're done, uh, you know, maybe 27 part, uh, I don't know. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have won the victory, Jesus, on the cross. You have vanquished principalities and powers. We are in you. Lord, we don't have to defeat Satan. You did that. All we need to do is walk in that victory, claim it by faith, allow you to live your life through us by faith. The victory has already been won. Give us grace that we might um, appropriate that victory every day in our lives through faith. Father, we ask that you would go before us and bless next week's study. Again, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.